My name is Jose Alvarez. I teach at New York University School of Law, and this is the second part of my lecture, The Human Right of Property. In the first part of this lecture, I surveyed the many international treaties and other instruments that include protections for property rights, as well as the criticisms on offer for international property rights. In the face of all the critiques of property rights, including critiques of internationalized property rights, what can be said in defense of the property rights treaties and declarations included in my table of 35? Well, the defense of the internationalization of property rights could begin by noting that its origins predate the first treaty on my table, that treaty from 1883. For those in the United States, the idea that property rights are fundamental, inherent to all persons, as a universal truth begins with that country's Declaration of Independence of 1776. The inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, close quote, referred to in that famous proclamation, were well understood to include property rights and by definition, that right was deemed universal, derived from the status of simply being human. As is shown in the contemporaneous Virginia Declaration of Rights that is now on your screen, and this declaration was dear to the author of the U.S. Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson, as that declaration clearly indicates, only rhetorical elegance prevented Thomas Jefferson from proclaiming that his elegant pursuit of happiness includes, as the Virginia Declaration of Rights rather less eloquently puts it, quote, the means of acquiring and possessing property, close quote. Even back in 1776, it seemed obvious to the founders of the United States that these were inalienable rights and that were not restricted by nationality, that they extend to all of us as persons and are not contingent on whether a government chooses to grant them to us. They believed, along with Madison and Locke, as this PowerPoint indicates, that the reason we have government is to protect property. From the start of the U.S. Republic, this inalienable right was also seen as having a transnational dimension. America's infatuation with property rights did not stop at its border. The right to property, including rights owed to those engaged in foreign trade, was at the heart of their revered Magna Carta. The merchant's chapter of that document that the founders so cared for proclaimed that, quote, all merchants shall have safe and secure exit from England and entry to England with the right to tarry there and to move about as well as by land as by water for buying and selling by the ancient and right customs quit from all evil tolls except in time of war such merchants as are of the land at war with us, close quote. Now, whether or not English noblemen, circa 1215, should be characterized as free traders, those who waged a revolutionary war to establish independence from Great Britain were deeply influenced by the Magna Carta's merchant's chapter. They saw private property as deeply embedded in the common law and essential to the capacity to engage in foreign commerce. They regarded England's failure to respect mutual property interests in the colonies as a key reason to seek independence. The founders of the United States also sought to convince foreign governments that their own fledgling republic would abide by the laws of nations and respect, as the golden rule demands, the property rights of others. The country's first treaties, the Treaty of the Peace with Britain and the Jay Treaty of 1794 with the same country, internationalized the U.S. Constitution's contract, takings, due process, and equal protection clauses. The country's first treaties recognize that both the U.S. Constitution and international law protected the property rights of both U.S. citizens and British aliens in the United States. The country's founding fathers, particularly Alexander Hamilton, argued that international law, and not only U.S. law, required extending the property rights protections enjoyed by U.S. citizens under the Constitution, even to British traders whose contract and property rights were then being violated under state laws and courts 
in the wake of the Revolutionary War. At a time when treaties defending the rights of such foreign investors were being denounced in our Congress as bad trade deals that violated U.S. sovereignty, Hamilton became their leading defender. He wrote 28 erudite essays, nearly 100,000 words, defending sequentially the Jay Treaty's 28 articles, entitled The Defense. This document shows the reverence with which borderless property rights were held even back in the 1700s. This was Alexander's words. No powers of, of language at my command can express the abhorrence I feel at the idea of violating the property of individuals. Close quote. Hamilton appealed to law, morality, and pragmatism to defend the need to protect private property, even when it is owed, owned by foreigners. As you will see from this other quotation, according to Hamilton, although under the law of nations, each country was free to determine for itself whether to permit foreigners to bring property into or acquire property in its territory, once it did so, it had a duty to protect that property because this too was part of the social contract. The Jay Treaty, which accepted the need to compensate British creditors for their losses and damages, notwithstanding state laws of the states of the U.S. that made it impossible for them to collect on these debts, removed what Alexander Hamilton called a stain on the, quote, honor and character of the country, close quote. And he thought this was required by morality, natural justice, and, quote, the spirit and principles of good government, close quote. To Hamilton, protecting a nation's reputation for respecting private rights of property under the rule of law was also vital to ensuring future capital flows into the country. The U.S.'s ratification of the Jay Treaty, defending the property rights of persons that were then widely considered to be traitors to the nation, initiated a remarkably resilient bipartisan consensus in favor of using international law to protect foreign capital both here and abroad in the same way and subject to the same rules as U.S. citizens are protected from property deprivations. That consistent policy has lasted for over 200 years. The United States and others in its orbit sought to protect private property even in cases of war and national emergency. The U.S. and much of the West has presumed that the same Lockean social contract struck between governments and the governed to protect citizens' property can and has been struck among nations via treaty. The United States, which eventually became the world's biggest importer of capital, as well as its leading exporter, has argued, consistently with Hamilton's instrumental arguments, that protecting national and foreign property helps to ensure more of both. As is well known, the idea that international customary law protects the rights of foreign investors came under considerable strain after decolonialization. But it is also important to remember that the proposition that property rights of all, person, of all persons are worth protecting, irrespective of nationality, is not a U.S. creation it actually predates the establishment of the United States. The U.S. founders' ideas that respect for property was essential to the very notion of jus gentinium, that is, essential to sovereignty, to peaceful interstate relations, and to the prospects for a common law among nations, were not original to them. The intellectual forebears of property rights writ large include Aristotle, Aquinas, Francisco de Victoria, Domenico de Soto, Hugo Grotius, Adam Smith, and John Locke, long before Hamilton hooked up his pen. Hamilton's arguments in the defense owed a debt to the scholastic Dominican friars in Salamanca, like Francisco de Victoria, who, inspired by Aristotle and Aquinas before them, provided a Christian or natural law rationale for private property and its protection. To vastly oversimplify, their argument was this. Even though God originally created shared or communal property, 
After the fall of Adam and Eve, when humans associated in society, natural law compelled the establishment of private property because this made everyone more diligent, enabled human affairs to be conducted in a more reliable way, and commerce made more likely to secure peace. There is then a direct line running through the arguments formed by the Salamanca school, Hugo Grotius, and the more secular contentions of thinkers like John Locke, Adam Smith, and Alexander Hamilton. Leaders of the Enlightenment provided the intellectual firepower that eventually led to the negotiation of the 35 instruments on my table, along with the emergence of globalized private property institutions from the World Bank's International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID, to regional human rights courts that are charged with, in part, the enforcement of property rights. Long before the first treaty on my table, the 1883 Paris Convention to Protect Industrial Property, long before that treaty was concluded, the right to property has been justified on the grounds, as this slide indicates, that it advances efficiency, promotes stability, and is conducive to peace within and between nations. Modern international law, as shown by my table of 35 instruments, demonstrate how many states have come to accept, albeit with many reservations and considerable hypocrisy, that all human beings, from those who create intellectual property to members of racial minorities, women, prisoners, indigenous peoples, and others who work the land, migrants, refugees, and stateless persons, and, and the disabled, that all can be fully human only if their rights to property are respected without discrimination. This is a piecemeal, piecemeal effort to correct, by fits and starts, many of the jurisprudential objections to the right to property and its internationalization that I have canvassed in part one of this lecture. International law has said in effect, yes, the right to property can be used to exclude slaves, women, prisoners, refugees, and to privilege only those with property. But the answer to these inequities is not to abolish private property, even if that were possible, but to expand that right on a non-discriminatory basis. Property rights treaties and their applications by regional human rights courts suggest how international law handles the very tricky balances that must be struck between the rights of sovereigns and individuals. As is clear from this text of Article 29 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, this balance always has to be struck when any human right is recognized. International law's property rights instruments recognize that while all societies have various forms of common and communal property, and all have the right to decide which property falls into each category. All also accept the basic institution of private property, even as that institution remains a contested concept. The right to property is at least as contested in its particular instantiation as our other human rights, such as the freedom of expression or of association, or what is the right to health or social security. It is not the only right in the human rights canon that needs to contend with the competing rights of others, as well as the state's right to regulate in the public interest. How particular states and regions strike the difficult balances between the sovereign right to regulate, an individual's right to possession, and other individuals' and society's rights to exclude others from enjoying what it decides is protected property, how those balances are struck vary. The fact that national and regional variations exist in how the right to property is recognized does not mean that the right of property does not exist as a matter of international legal obligation. States differ, after all, considerably on the meaning and scope of many other human rights, in rights from what constitutes protected speech to the meaning of inhumane treatment. My table of property rights instruments begins to suggest the fragmented nature of property rights regime, which vary not only by the particular sub-regime within international law to which it applies, but region by region, and depending on ratifications and reservations, country by country. The capacity of states to ratify only those treaties with which they agree 
and to make reservations as necessary, enables countries and regions to adapt the capacious right to property or of property to their own needs and traditions. The diversity of these treaties, the fact that the 35 instruments on my table differ on what protected property is, which property owners they seek to protect, whether a particular property right is subject to a legally binding remedy in a national and international venue, and if so, what the nature of that remedy is. All these differences and contingencies tell us that it would probably be fruitless to attempt to negotiate a single global pact to provide uniform property rules of some substance. The a la carte quality of international law property regimes, which some see as a threat to international law's unity, may be a benefit, not a detriment. Consider, for example, the American Declaration of the Rights of and Duties of Man. That declaration recognizes the right to property in its Article 23. Every person has a right to own such private property as meets the essential needs of decent living and helps to maintain the dignity of the individual and of the home." Close quote. Now, this deceptively simple commitment stresses the connections between property and the right to basic shelter, to food, and to work. This emphasis may help to explain why the Inter-American Court of Human Rights has been able to use the subsequent American Convention of Human Rights to recognize the connection between basic human needs and the right to communal lands for indigenous peoples. This connection is suggested by this statement by the court in 2001 in a case involving indigenous peoples from Nicaragua. The Inter-American Court has repeatedly decided in response to complaints filed by distinct indigenous groups in the states of Nicaragua, Paraguay, Suriname, and Ecuador, that such peoples have the rights to enjoy such lands even in the absence of formal land title. In the course of resolving such disputes, that court has had to balance creatively the competing property rights at stake, the rights of a state like Nicaragua to regulate land tenure, but also the rights of innocent third-party purchasers of indigenous lands whose rights also have to be considered. In a case involving indigenous rights in Paraguay, for example, the Inter-American Court made a number of specific determinations, showing the difficult competing forces at play. Adjudicators or interpreters in other regions, including those deciding such matters pursuant to international instruments like the African Charter or on human and people's rights or the ILO Convention concerning indigenous and tribal peoples, they may come to different conclusions about how to balance the competing rights at stake. They may decide, for example, to give greater or lesser weight to the interests of innocent third-party purchasers of indigenous lands than has the Inter-American Court, in the quotes that I've put up on the PowerPoints. Or they may decide differently in particular contexts about whether compensation or restitution is an appropriate remedy for the indigenous peoples involved. Different interpretations of the right to property from region to region, court to court, may be a function of the varying texts of the underlying treaties keeping in mind that even minute word choices can make a substantial difference. Property instruments suggest different ways that states are obligated to respect, to protect, or to fulfill the underlying property rights that these instruments include. But differences in application and interpretation may also be a function of distinct historical experiences among regions that have given rise to these instruments. They may reflect different cultural or social expectations held with respect to, for example, government entitlements such as pensions, which may or may not be seen as creating legitimate expectations that need to be respected as a form of property right. The instruments in my table, particularly regional human rights instruments, have, in short, distinct historical trajectories, which are likely to affect the interpretations of a contested right like the human right of property. Even though Article 21 of the American Convention, which the Inter-American Court was applying in these indigenous cases, even though that article does not contain references to basic needs, as did the original American Declaration, that earlier American Declaration may have influenced the court. It is also likely, as Van Banning has suggested, that the Inter-American Court's rulings on point have been influenced by the long-standing latifundia systems of large farms worked by tenants with limited rights 
in that region and the need to overcome that legacy. It is also likely, as he points out, that the different historical trajectory of African states will come to influence the African courts' interpretations of the property rights clauses of the African Charter. The unique histories of land tenure in African countries influence the contents of the African Charter. Its provisions reflect what Van Banning describes as the plutiformity of property relationships, close quote, among many African states. That is, the fact that in many African countries, most land was traditionally held in common. Land registration was not widely practiced. And in the wake of decolonization, large-scale government-led nationalizations of agricultural lands occurred. Consider the African Charter's Articles 13, 14, and 21. The African Charter's provision for equal access to state-owned lands finds no equivalent in the American Convention. Its deference to the regulatory needs of states is made manifest by its open-ended invitation to governments to condition property rights, quote, in accordance with appropriate laws, close quote, under Article 14. That extraordinary deference to state power over private property rights also seems clear in Article 21's emphasis on the state's control over the, quote, wealth of the nation. That is an echo to the neo it is also found in Article 21's blow against foreign monopolies, a reference which finds no equivalent provision in the other regional instruments in the table. As yet, these provisions have not been subject to the kind of repeated adjudications undertaken by the European Court of Human Rights or the Inter-American Court, so we do not yet know how internationalized property rights will develop among the African Charter's 53 state parties. But this text makes it unlikely that internationalized property rights will take the same form as they have there as, for example, under the American Convention. Now, the European Convention of Human Rights Property Rights Article, by contrast, seems relatively close in its text to that of the American Convention, with the exception, as you see from this PowerPoint, of the American Convention's specific mention banning usury. The European Convention of Human Rights Protection of Possessions, which are accompanied by a regional court capable of rendering legally binding decisions, including awarding damages for their breach, suggests the greater depth of protection that is possible within a region, Europe, with shared historical, cultural, and legal traditions. The European Court of Human Rights has developed the largest body of property case law of any international court. Of the 19,750 rulings that that court issued between 1959 and 2016, 3,098, or roughly one in six, were cases involving the right to property. These cases have defined, with ever greater nuance, what constitutes a protected possession for purposes of the European Convention of Human Rights, what compensation is due when property is taken by the state, and what are acceptable justifications that a government may offer in defense of its actions. The significance of shared core cultural assumptions to elaborating a human right of property that has some depth and precision is suggested by the fact that European disputes over property increased dramatically after states engaged in democratic transitions in Eastern Europe, whose histories were different than those of Western Europe, after they joined the regional system. The experience of the European Court of Human Rights also suggests that even when an internationalized property right is unquestionably accepted as a fundamental legal obligation, it still remains contested. Even in Europe, the right to or of property is among the most violated provisions of the European Convention of Human Rights. It is ranked fifth behind alleged denials of the right to liberty and security, claims of inhumane or degrading treatment, and denials of rights to a fair trial. While in Europe, the right of property is a human and certainly a fundamental right, as befits the very title of the European Convention of Fundamental Rights and Freedoms, its contours remain subject to fluid tools of interpretation, including application of the principles of subsidiarity, 
and the European court's margin of appreciation as developed in Strasbourg. The interpretation of the European Convention of Human Rights, property rights provisions, is also affected by the fact that this issue is so heavily litigated at the court in Strasbourg. And this perhaps reflects that region's greater comfort level with supranational supervision, as well as adversarial litigation as compared to other regions, other countries. The sheer number of property claims brought before an international adjudicative venue impacts, impacts the depth of judicial interpretation. Relative to the smaller property jurisprudence that has been issued by the Inter-American Court, the European Court of Human Rights is likely to have addressed a number of questions with more nuance. While comparing the property rights jurisprudence of these two regional courts that have the most property rights jurisprudence, while comparing those two is beyond the scope of my remarks here, it is important to recognize that there are commonalities as well as differences between the two. The European Court of Human Rights and the Inter-American Court have rendered some substantively comparable rulings with respect to classic takings of classic cases of government takings of property, also involving instances involving civil forfeiture of property, and some cases involving deprivations of previously accorded government benefits. But the Inter-American Court has had to deal with communal rights of the indigenous as well as what it has called grave property rights cases that have not been faced by the judges at Strasbourg. Up on the screen is a quotation from the Indago Massacre's case, and that indicates some of the issues that that court has had to face. That case involved a raid of a town by a paramilitary group in Colombia. The Inter-American Court had to deal with an instance where 80% of the homes in that town were set on fire and people's livelihoods were all destroyed. The massacre led the court to emphasize, as is shown in these quotes, as it had with respect to the ties between indigenous peoples and their lands, the grave effects of both the destruction of homes and of cattle. As these quotes suggest, even regional treaties that include property rights as human rights and anticipate that these rights will be enforced by an international court may differ between them. Not all, not only because of differences in how these treaties are expressed in the underlying treaties, but because of differences in who the judges are in the respective courts, what kinds of property claims are brought before them, what relevant stakeholders in the respective regions expect from the court, and whether the judges believe that their pronouncements will be respected by the states. This last may affect, for example, whether judges are willing to engage in interpretations that might be seen as unusually creative or unexpected. The point, in short, is this. Since not all international courts are created equal, not all their property jurisprudence is likely to be the same, even when the texts supporting property rights that they are interpreting seem similar. Institutional context matters. Of course, the texts of regional property rights instruments do differ. Even texts that you see up here from the Arab and ASEAN regions, which share some similarities with other instruments on my table, including the text of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, one suspects that even these somewhat similar instruments, if ever subjected to case law development, are likely to lead to different interpretations. The texts of the Arab Charter and the ASEAN Declaration are different in some respects from the others that I have mentioned. The ASEAN Declaration is not a legally binding treaty and does not, now at least, anticipate enforcement by an international tribunal. The Arab Charter is legally binding, but its considerable and probably intended ambiguities, its lack of a definition for crucial terms like private property or arbitrarily or unlawfully, all of those mean that such terms could be given either the expansive interpretations that we might expect from the European Court of Human Rights or the Inter-American Court, or the much more restrictive ones that one might reasonably expect from the text of the African Charter and its Article 21. Notably, the Arab and ASEAN texts differ as between themselves, even though 
They are among the most recent human rights instruments adopted. Unlike all the other regional property rights texts on my table, the Arab Charter is limited by its terms to the protection of private property, with no mention of state-owned property or rights held in common. It does not contain a reference to equal rights for citizens with respect to public property that we saw in the African Charter, or any reference comparable to that found in other human rights instruments about the need to balance private property rights with the sovereign's rights to protect particular community interests, such as public order. But on the other hand, since the Arab Charter's text imposes only weak limits on the state's power to regulate private ownership, perhaps there's no need to protect the right to regulate in the public interest or to spell out what those regulatory interests might be, as, say, the European Court of Human Rights has done in great detail through its jurisprudence. After all, under the terms of the Arab Charter, all that a state party needs to do is to avoid, quote, arbitrary, close quote, measures and make sure that its interferences with private property are undertaken pursuant to perhaps any law or even perhaps a mere executive order. The multilateral treaties on my table that recognize property rights also differ, even though they all emphasize non-discrimination or equality. These treaties focus on different vulnerable groups whose vulnerability to state abuse rests on different histories, different sins of omission or commission by the state. The disabled, refugees, stateless persons, and others on this list have suffered from discrimination with respect to property rights for different reasons. And therefore, what these treaties encourage by way of rectifying the problem is likely to be responsive to these differences. Consider as just one example the case of CEDAW. The CEDAW's committee's efforts to interpret that treaty's demands on states that they, quote, give women equal rights to conclude contracts and to administer property, close quote, that they, quote, take all appropriate measures to eliminate discrimination against women in all matters relating to marriage and family relations, close quote, and that they, quote, extend the same rights for both spouses in respect of the ownership, acquisition, management, administration, enjoyment, and disposition of property, close quote. Those clauses have generated an interesting and unique body of international jurisprudence. Now, this jurisprudence is not formally binding, even with respect to many state parties. And that fact alone is likely to make the CEDAW committee's non-binding interpretations different and have a different impact from those issued by regional human rights courts. Substantively, CEDAW reframes property rights to the specific ways that women's property rights have been violated historically and culturally. That convention and its expert body focuses like a laser beam on property rights in what some would call the private sphere, that is, in the course of marriage, divorce, or inheritance. The CEDAW Committee's general recommendation, number 21, spells out the many ways that family relations, household distribution of work, and responsibilities in the household, as well as gender stereotypes, can bias the distribution of property rights between spouses. It calls attention to what one scholar has called the, quote, double vulnerability, close quote, that women face in being secure in their homes, not only because of national laws that fail to treat them equally, but also because of embedded cultural practices that emphasize male lineage with respect to tenure, inheritance, and even the right to bear a last name of one's choice. The specialized attention to gender equality, along with the gender mainstreaming in UN institutions that CEDAW has encouraged, has enabled international law to begin to address the ways that the traditional public-private distinction have undermined not only the rights of women, but also UN efforts to promote sustainable development. As Kitty Richish has noted, thanks to treaties like CEDAW, it is increasingly accepted that, quote, the pursuit of gender empowerment without attention to the distribution of land is an enterprise that is fatally hobbled from the outset, as for a large percentage of the world's population, real assets come primarily in the form of entitlements to land, close quote. Attention to the intersection between gender and property 
is challenging assumptions that only a certain type of property regime requiring privatization and deregulation, as well as individualized property title, that only that is desirable. The specific attention to how property and gender intersects has encouraged some policymakers to consider alternatives to the individualization of title and alternatives to the commodification of all forms of property, while still promoting it the right to, and be sensitive to how best to use property rules to achieve greater security, certainty, and predictability, doing so without requiring formalization or individualization of title. CEDAW's insistence on contextualizing how property rights relate to the unequal status of women and girls, its committees demand that states accommodate differences not only between men and women, but between different women and girls in different places and time, also cast doubt on the wisdom of uniform property rules for, say, rural and urban women, even within a single country. At the same time, the CEDAW's committee and NGOs that influence it have emphasized that less formalized and non-unitary approaches to property rights do not necessarily require less from governments, but may actually require more and more nuanced government regulation of property rights. One of CEDAW's targets, after all, with respect to property rights, as with respect to other aspects of women's equality, is cultural stereotypes and the need for government efforts to combat them. CEDAW's critical take on traditional property rights, which departs considerably from the individualistic property jurisprudence of countries like the United States, is the product of its focus on gender equality. Like the other equality instruments on the table, such as CERD, CEDAW is embedded also in an institutionalized setting that embraces experts, special rapporteurs, periodic consideration of state reports, annual revisitations by the UN General Assembly, and where states have accepted optional protocols, judicialized opinions, even though not binding, with respect to the merits of individual complaints. These institutional venues encourage continuous conversations on how property rights impact the other rights owed to the particular vulnerable group under focus. Like the revisable interpretations of property rights that have been rendered by regional courts over time, a property rights views issued by these various conventions expert bodies are likely to change over time. Property rights treaties, like CEDAW and others, are living instruments. If CEDAW is any guide, the human right of property can be treated as, quote, fundamental, close quote, even if it provides a fluid and not a static right. In the case of CEDAW, the right of property seems to adapt to changing views of how best to accept the fact that as the leading feminist scholar Catherine McKinnon has put it, women are human too. These aspects of the underlying international instruments begin to answer some of the prominent complaints about property rights and internationalized property rights in particular. As the indigenous cases and their results before the Inter-American Court suggest, the human right of property need not only protect private individual property, nor do property-respecting instruments insist that the only route to economic development lies in allocating private formal title to individuals, nor do they endorse only one kind of market state or require deregulation or privatization. The human right of property that these treaties protect is often stated in general terms that give considerable discretion to interpreters and adjudicators over time. Even those regimes connected to a particular adjudicative forum need not be wedded to recipe books for development, such as the Washington Consensus, which may become disfavored with experience. The fragmentation, the very fluidity of the human right of property need not be seen, as unfortunately it most often is, as undermining its status as a genuine human right. Like other human rights, the right of property can rightly be regarded as fundamental 
not only because it is intended to impose at least some limitations on state abuse of power, but also in the sense that it is meant to endure as a right even as societies change in response to new knowledge and experience. These instruments also suggest some answers to those who see international property rights as infringements on or threats to sovereignty. The instruments on my table are, after all, devised by states, for states. They do not intrude on their sovereignty any more than other parts of international law. States negotiate property-protecting treaties because they deem these treaties to be in their self-interest. The 35 instruments in my table are, like other treaties, exercises, not infringements of sovereignty. Of course, these instruments share the weaknesses of other international obligations. With few exceptions, they contain generally weak tools to compel state compliance. But this critical flaw is also, from a different standpoint, a saving grace. These regimes accept that, as Lewis Henkin acknowledged, quote, few, if any, human rights are absolute, close quote, and that even such rights may sometimes bow to compelling public interests. These regimes' notorious enforcement gaps and express and implied exceptions make the human right of property a malleable instrument that does not easily or always trump the state. Well-known textual weaknesses in CEDAW, for example, with respect to the requirements that it imposes on states, the prevalence of hedge words in that instrument, such as, as appropriate, close quote, and states' abundant and broad reservations to CEDAW, as well as the potential for outright defiance of the CEDAW committee's views and recommendations, all of these threaten to make that treaty, as well as many others, on my table toothless. But this weakness means that the threat that these human rights treaties pose to legitimate sovereignty should not be exaggerated. Whatever it might be in the context of international investment agreements and their relatively effective ways to enforce the property rights of alien investors, the international right of property, as applied in places like the CEDAW Committee, is not a sort of Damocles hanging over conscientious regulators that are sincerely fulfilling the public good. But at the same time, venues like the CEDAW Committee and others are still places for scrutinizing the wisdom or good faith of government's actions. Comparable sensitivity to sovereign concerns is also suggested by the, by the remedies available to those seeking to enforce the human right of property. That right, at least in the traditional human rights instruments that are on my table, is literally a right of and not necessarily to property. With some exceptions, such as the rulings that I've mentioned, by the Inter-American Court that grant indigenous peoples access to particular ancestral lands. International judicial decisions rarely require granting persons title to particular lands or to particular goods, that is, the restitution of property. In the majority of cases where international regimes extend legally binding relief for property deprivations, that remedy consists of some form of, quote, just or, quote, proportional compensation, and not always fair market value of the property, or even other forms of redress, such as an apology from the state. Regional human rights courts have, after all, historically been most attentive to securing the removal of state laws or practices that violate human rights, in accord with the view that their principal function is to prevent future abuses of rights by condemning them, Although the increased attention to the right to have an effective remedy, particularly in the European Court of Human Rights, may be changing that, such courts have only been secondarily attentive to the need to fully redress the rights of victims for their injuries, even with respect to property rights. So, in light of all of this, what is the positive case in favor of the human right of property? Well, there are many instrumental reasons for property rights both within and among states. The instrumental case had been made by everyone from friars in Salamanca to Garrett Hardin, whose tragedy of the commons is often seen as a justification for private property. Now, some of these strategic arguments extend to the international protection of the right, and some are more convincing than others. For people like Hernando de Soto, granting individual land titles, including to those who formerly held land in common, is absolutely essential for economic development. Others, 
like the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Food, Olivier Deschotiers, argue that there are better ways to provide security of tenure to poor farmers, including recognition of communal land ownership. Today, there is skepticism about other international, uh, other instrumental arguments that are frequently made to defend the right to foreign-owned property. Many resist treaties like the NAFTA or investor state arbitration generally because they believe that global trade and capital flows do not lift all boats and principally enrich those with yachts. Reasonable people can disagree about the overall instrumental benefits of IIAs or about others' uh, treaties on my table. Those who defend the right to property only by connecting that right to the need for the free trade uh, investment or capital. As is suggested by some of my quotes from Alexander Hamilton, those who defend that right only this way are not likely to convince those who are skeptical, rightly or wrongly, about the wisdom of those flows or of economic globalization more generally. Such instrumental justifications also fall into the trap of seeing property rights as indistinguishable from the West's support for hegemonic international law in favor of capitalism. Somewhat more convincing and a bit less ideologically challenged are arguments that states that fail to respect the property rights that they previously granted tend to be weak rule of law states with less than independent judiciaries that cannot be counted on to enforce any human right. It is certainly true that when the national rule of law collapses, property rights are usually threatened. And it is also true that the denial of property rights may be a harbinger of general disrespect for law. Historically, authoritarian rulers have often used property deprivations to penalize their political opponents or even as tools for ethnic cleansing or for causing malnutrition by expropriation. As the pending International Criminal Court arrest warrant against President Bashir of Sudan reminds us, systematic acts of pillage, which are included in that indictment, that is, the theft of property during war, are rightly treated as international crimes. And they also reflect the sad fact that such acts of pillage have been notorious since antiquity. And there are many other historical examples of property deprivations that have been used to commit grave offenses against life. Cases where even the threat to property is used to instill fear or to undermine other rights such as the freedom of expression, of association, or to worship. U.S. courts are not wrong to suggest that genocidal takings of property exist. One only has to look at the U.N. documented atrocities committed by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia or by Mao during his great leap forward. One strategic argument, then, for protecting property rights internationally is that the national and international rule of law tend to go together. Mass atrocities and grave property deprivations have indeed often come together. But not everyone believes that property rights are a seamless web, inevitably tied to the overall respect for the rule of law. Not everyone agrees with Hamilton that governments that are willing to violate their word to each other to protect foreign investors are also likely to violate the internal social contract that they've made to their own property holders, their citizens. Not everyone thinks that minor property violations by a state entail a slippery slope towards undermining the rule of law altogether. So therefore, what is the non-instrumental, the truly moral case for the human right of property? So the treaties on my list tend to share some moral assumptions, despite their differences and even contradictions. A number of them, such as the Refugee Convention, the ILO's Treaties on Indigenous Peoples, the Convention on the Status of Statelessness, are recognized that the right of property is not dependent on sovereigns to give or to withhold. Each of these recognizes that, as Thomas Jefferson said, these rights are inherent to persons and not dependent on their nationality or lack of one. States cannot discriminate between refugees who are not part of their national social contract because refugees are people. They do not need, they need to do the same with respect to stateless persons, even if these human beings lack a state protection. These treaties recognize the need to recognize the right to land for the indigenous, even when a state has not given such persons formal title. These treaties usefully remind us that foreigners, asylum seekers, and those 
not protected by a government are people too. They remind us, as all human rights treaties do, that governments don't get to decide unilaterally who a person with rights is. These treaties also express ethical values. They evince respect for vested rights once granted by a state on the basis that governments need to respect those to whom they give their word. The equality treaties on my table resist distinction between their human beneficiaries. It turns out that the right of property extends to the rich no less than the poor. It does not defer to racist or sexist cultures or stereotypes. Even prisoners cannot be completely denied the core right to their personal effects. This demand for non-arbitrary, non-discriminatory treatment rests on the need to respect human dignity equally dispersed. Because it is a right not to treat persons as mere objects and out of respect for each person's autonomy to make decisions over their own lives. As is particularly suggested by treaties protecting industrial property, investors, workers' wages, and the right of farmers and indigenous peoples to use their land, international law also presumes strong connections between the right to work and the right to what has been earned through work. At the same time, these treaties, with some exceptions, do not guarantee anyone access or title to specific property, provided that the rule of law is respected. And as it's most clearly suggested by the Arab Charter, at its most basic in some countries and some purposes, the human right of property is sometimes only procedural. It may only guarantee due process in connection with property. Several of these treaties presume that it is not right to discriminate even with respect to the right to communal or, or community property, but also that it is essential to recognize basic rights to some forms of private property because anything less fails to respect the dignity of persons in groups or as individuals. They give effect to the scholastics arguments that a right to personal property is essential to persons living in common because it deflects or avoids conflict. They presume, along with Amartya Sen, that the right to property permits people to lead the kind of lives people value. They follow Hegel and Kant in the belief that personal property enables the exercise of one's moral autonomy, that it enables persons to express their personality, achieve their independence, and master a degree of self-government. Like Aristotle, they suggest that without non-discriminatory access to a basic core right to property, people are slaves. At bottom, as is the case with all human rights, the case for the human right of property is premised on the need for law, including international law, to protect another contested but no less important value, human dignity. Thank you for listening.